This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On May 11th in the year of 868 AD, at least according to the Western calendar, the Diamond Sutra was printed in China. This is significant to this week's guest because it is known to be the earliest dated printed book in the world. And the connection is not just because this week's guest knows a thing or two about books. The other connection is this document and this week's guest both reside in the same city, and that is London. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step out the DeLorean, it is the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in the year 1918. We are outside a railroad car in the middle of France. We are witnessing an armistice between the Allied forces and Germany, essentially ceasing fighting in World War I. At the time, it was thought that this was the end of the war to end all wars. We know, unfortunately, this was not the case, as our country would have to see many more soldiers go off to war throughout the years. And although we can never repay our heroes for what they have done for the country, we can at least recognize the sacrifices that they have given to protect us. This is why every year on this day, November 11th, we celebrate Veterans Day. But of course, you know we have to give you a little bit of history of the day, right? In November of 1919, President Wilson proclaimed November 11th as the first commemoration of Armistice Day. Then on May 13th of 1938, the day became a legal holiday known as Armistice Day, primarily to honor the veterans of World War I. Unfortunately, we had to endure another great war in the next decade, and then more fighting upon more fighting beyond that. On June 1st, 1954, it became a day to honor all veterans of all wars, and it was officially called Veterans Day. As I sit here recording this intro just a little bit later than I typically would, which is on Veterans Day itself, I want to pause with a moment of silence to honor all of our brave men and women, past, present, and future. So please join me for the next 10 seconds of silence to just stop and think about what this really means or the lost loved ones that you have or any other way that you think honors the veterans on Veterans Day. Thank you for that. I will never know what it's like to serve, but I can always appreciate those that have. Another thing that I will never know what it's like, or at least probably anyways, is what it's like to live in another country other than the United States. And I will always have football on my home channel. This is where we hit the crossroads for this episode. For you see, we must go back to the introduction of the episode, because that's precisely what this week's guest goes through each week when he watches, I'm using air quotes here, American football. And remember that whole London thing? Well, this week's guest is Shane Richmond. You see, Shane lives in London, just like that first ever book known in recorded history. It's at a museum in London. And it's fitting because Shane owns and operates a site fully dedicated to American football books, which is called pigskinbooks.com. 
Londonerdot.com. Of course, you know we get links over at the show notes. Yes, it's a Londoner. He runs a site about American football, not soccer, or footy, or football, or the most beautiful game, or whatever else you want to call it, depending on where you're from. But why does he do this? And what is the site all about? Well, we answered these questions and some other very interesting, well, we'll call it cultural perspective questions along the way. But before we jump into the episode, let me remind you that the Football History Do podcast is part of the Sports History Network, which is the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. We're going to continue to work on uncovering, preserving, and sharing so many more stories out there that most of us have never even heard of. Yet, these are the stories that built and were the foundation of the sports and teams that we all adore. To learn more about the network, I urge you to head over to sportshistorynetwork.com. You can check out everything that we have to offer, provide us suggestions for stories, or even learn how you can start your own show or contribute to the site with articles of your own. But for now, let's get into the interview from across the pond with Shane Richmond. I see your Ravens helmet and football back there. Would that be your your team of choice or? It is, yeah. Yeah. So that's... um. Uh, the, the first the first time I saw a game in the U.S., it was uh, a Ravens game, so that kind of um, won me over. But that wasn't until 2000, so I've been a fan since since the mid 1980s. So I was, I was a fan of the Dolphins as a kid, um, but uh, only ever saw them play in London. I've never been to see the Dolphins play in the U.S. Yeah, I mean. 2000 in Baltimore, that kind of, I mean, not to call you a bandwagoner, but that kind of worked out that time frame, I suppose, huh? It really did. I mean, at the time when I went to see them, um, it was, I was with my then girlfriend's family, my now my wife, um, and I was over there for my first Thanksgiving, and they asked what I wanted to do while I was in the States, and I said, I'd really like to go to an NFL game, because I've wanted to go to one for years, and they're actually all fans of what we now we we should now call the Washington Football Team, and um, they they were playing the I think it was the Eagles. It was a big rivalry game that weekend, and they said nobody's giving up their tickets. Completely full. We can't get you there. And I said, well, what about Baltimore? And they said, well, yeah, we can get you there, but no one's going to Baltimore. They're really terrible at the moment. And it was they just come out of a run of not having scored a touchdown on offense for four weeks or something, and nobody expected them to go on on that Super Bowl run. But um, I was just amazed by seeing that defense in the flash. And I've loved defensive football since I was a kid. So I just came away thinking, wow, they're fantastic. And and they didn't lose again all the way to, to the Super Bowl. So, yeah, it was a, a good time to get into that team. Yeah, it kind of worked out perfect timing. And it just it kind of sparks a personal interest with me. Uh, listeners of the show know that my second team, my AFC team, is the Baltimore Ravens and that 2000 run. It was even before then, really, but really that 2000 run, uh, I mean, they started in 96, I guess, so it's not like they had that many years. But with Ray Lewis and that organized chaos defense, uh, I was linebacker was my primary position. I'm offensive line too, but defense was the one that I enjoyed more. And I don't want to say I emulated my style like Ray Lewis because that's not possible. But at the same time, I like to think that I tried to uh, try to use that kind of fire that he had on the field as much as possible. And just, I just grew in love with them. Same thing. Like you said, the defense, I loved it. The, really the organized chaos. Like I loved how they used to use that terminology and then taking it all the way to the Super Bowl and crushing the giants. I don't remember what the score was or anything, but it was just a very good run of a team that had 
Trent Dilfer <laughs> as her quarterback. I mean, a guy who typically no one thought really was going to go anywhere kind of thing. So, I mean, that was what. A, so, okay. So think about, okay, Ravens, you're, it's a 1020 AM Eastern standard time. What time is it over there? It's 320 in the afternoon. Okay. So if you watch a Baltimore Ravens Sunday night football game, when does that end for you? Or when is that? So that's got to be like three in the something like that, three in the morning. About four thirty in the morning, something like that. So it, it's um, a kind of eight twenty evening kickoff um, for you guys on the east coast would be one twenty a.m. for for us here in the UK. Do you are you pretty hardcore about that? Where you watch the games all the time, or is it when I, you can? I stay up now for I'll stay up for playoff games. Um, but I've stopped staying up for the since since my daughter was born. My ability to stay up into the early hours and then get up and do a day's work in uh, the, the morning after has um, has kind of deserted me. So I tend not to stay up for the ones in season now. Right. Yeah. I mean that totally understandable. And uh, speaking of, you said you you love defense. Uh, but on the flip side of that, they've been past year known for Lamar Jackson and having that great fantasy season last year. Do you play fantasy football at all, or does is that a thing over by you? It it is. I um I actually stopped a couple of years ago because it was getting mostly because I I wanted to use more of my spare time on the football book site, and it was starting to eat into my time spent kind of pouring over stat sheets and working out who might be playing this week and so on. So I actually stopped. But the last thing I did, I was in a, um, uh, a uh, what do they call it? The, when, when the team kind of rolls over from one year to the next. Oh, a keeper league. Yeah. So I was in, I'd started a keeper league and it was the year that Lamar was drafted and I drafted him in his rookie season and then I left the league that year. I gave uh, it to some other guy. So he took over this team with Lamar Jackson as his QB last year. So uh, I think he had a pretty good year. Yeah, he had a pretty good year last year. I mean, this year, um, you know, he's coming back to earth, I guess you could say, or whatever have you. I mean, it's the whole you don't draft a quarterback early because this is what you get. Uh, I'm looking at that football. Who, who's the autograph for that back in oh, that's behind a Jeff Macca football. Okay. All yeah. right. And so, and then I'm looking, I mean, to go along with the theme here, you have, geez, I don't know, maybe hundred books or so up there. How did a guy from London where football means a different thing, get into starting a website about American football books? Yeah. So you can't, there's, there's about 200 behind me, I think altogether. Oh my goodness. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's a lot. Um, so I've, I've always been a big reader and I've, you know, I read all kinds of stuff, not just books about sport. Um, and I've been into the sport, like I say, since the mid eighties and back then, you know, without the internet, without the ability to just kind of pick up on, um, niche cultures or things that are going on in foreign countries quite so easily the way we can now, you had to pretty much teach yourself, which meant going to the library and finding books. So there were a handful of of books about American football that started coming out here in the mid-80s. We were quite lucky in that we had a bunch of magazines as well. There was a little sort of NFL boom from about 1983 onwards here in the UK. Um, And it got to a point where once um, my wife and I were dating and we were going out there at least every year, every Thanksgiving, sometimes a couple of times a year. And one of the things I would do would be to go and look around a few bookshops because I love going to bookshops just generally. 
And I soon realized that there, there were loads of American football books in there that I just couldn't get here. So I would come back from every trip with four or five of these books stuffed in my suitcase and gradually started building up the collection. But it was it was very difficult to know what to read next because there is, as you say, we're you know we're very remote from it here. So bookstores here maybe have two or three American football books, and obviously, uh, I mean now we're in lockdown, so what bookshops there are are closed. But there there are fewer bookshops than even fifteen years ago. So actually, keeping up on this stuff is quite hard. You can go onto Amazon and order pretty much whatever you like, but you've kind of got to know what you're looking for, really. And so that was the challenge. It was kind of, how do I find out what's worth reading? And I found um, Chris Wessling from around the NFL has a, a spreadsheet of hundreds of, of recommended football books, which is which is useful, but it doesn't tell you very much about them. And so I thought it would be good if somebody actually set up a website where you could go and find the next football book you wanted to read, basically. Um, and that's when I thought, I may as well do it myself. Nobody else has done it. Yeah, it's kind of cool how you you saw a need and it was a need because you had a need yourself and then you just decided to go out, grab it. And really a lot of great inventions are are built that way. Uh, speaking of great inventions and throughout history, uh, like I told you, I did a little bit of research on your your time and working with the Telegraph and some other, some of your other interviews, like the Fitbit guy and uh, the father of the internet and that kind of thing. I mean, you've, so you, it's safe to say that you have a very wide range of skills, I think. And I just was curious, where, where did that passion come from? The, you said reading, um, maybe investigative, whatever the word is, like, where did that passion come from when you were younger? I think it's, I mean, what it comes down to basically is that, that I'm a writer and, and um, I find ways to tell stories regardless of the subject. I started out as a music journalist when that was my first job in journalism, but I've done news reporting. I've done technology journalism. These days I mostly write about, um, about technology, but I do all kinds of other subjects. I think it came, I, I had a love as a kid of, of finding stuff out. I think I was quite lucky with my family that whenever I asked, those kinds of endless questions that kids ask, they would kind of say, well, why don't you try and find out what the answer is? Um, which, like I say, often would involve going to the library and trying to figure stuff out um, or just working it out what questions to ask to get the answers you wanted. So I kind of grew up with that love of acquiring knowledge, particularly just odd, unusual bits of information always kind of stuck in my brain or always things that I looked for. So when American football came along when I was about 10, 11 here, um, it was part of the fascination with it, I think, was that I've got to figure out how this thing is played. I don't even know what all these strange rules are or where these teams are. I mean, I didn't know very much about America. Um, I picked the Miami Dolphins as my team primarily because Miami Vice was big at the time. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, Miami Vice is on telly. There's a team in Miami. Fine, I'll, I'll be a Miami Dolphins fan. So I knew nothing. So it was kind of a chance to find out all of this stuff, which was really fascinating. You know, just finding out things like at the time when I got into it, you know, the India, Indianapolis Colts were a relatively new team having just moved from Baltimore. And the idea of a team moving from one place to another is completely bizarre here. Soccer teams would never do it. There's been, there's been one kind of in my lifetime that moved in the early 90s, the mid 90s. Uh, and they did it for a very good reason that they couldn't 
get a, a, a stadium in their home borough, the council. Uh, it's actually Wimbledon, so the tennis tournament people. Uh, that council wasn't very interested in allowing a football stadium to be built, so they moved. And they are still, this was 20, 25 years ago, and they're still looked down upon by other fans for having moved to a different place. It's just not, it's not a thing that happens in soccer. So finding out all of this strange stuff that, oh, wow, this is, this is something that happens in American football. Um, you know, it, was, it, it just really tapped into that sense I have of, of just wanting to know how things work all the time. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. And it didn't even dawn on me that, like you said, you don't, so you don't have a team over there. You had to kind of choose your team. And because of Miami Vice, that's, don't, I mean, it makes sense. You, that's all you know when you were a kid. Most of us, we grew up and it's whatever team is around our location. Is that the same thing for, okay, we'll go, I'm going to say football because I'll say the right thing for you over there. Uh, like your football club, is that kind of how it works there too? Wherever you grow up in the general vicinity, it's like die hard or is there uh, disloyalty at all? Or how does that typically work amongst football clubs? It's it's hugely important to support your local team. It's, it's that's kind of... That's the sort of big badge of honor if you support the team that is your local team. You're kind of, for other fans, you know, fans might, they might kind of um, give you a hard time if your team's doing badly or whatever. But if you've chosen the team because that's where you were born or that's, you know, the nearest team where you grew up, then no one can really dispute your choice because you've kind of, you know, you've inherited it almost. So I, I support a team called Norwich uh, from a, from the east of England, which is the city I was born in. Um, but where that kind of runs into problems immediately is I've lived in London since I was 11 now. So well over 30 years. My daughter's not particularly interested in sport, but if she was, she should technically support her local team, which isn't Norwich. And she could support the family team, which is Norwich. And so you get people who kind of, well, yeah, okay, I don't live anywhere near Manchester, but Manchester United are playing very well. And my dad supports Manchester United, so I'm going to support them. Um, but there's still a lot of kids who, when they get into the sport, they just adopt whichever team is successful at the time. I think that's, there's always going to be a group of kids who, who do that. And so when I was a kid, it was Liverpool who were dominating in the 80s. Through the 90s and 2000s, it was Manchester United. What's interesting now, though, is that because of the, the shrinking of the world with the internet and uh, the rise of all the TV channels we have available, we can watch European football every week here, or European soccer every week here. And we can watch what's called the Champions League, where the best teams in every European country compete each year for a big trophy, which means the big Spanish clubs are there, the big German clubs are there, and so on. So um, when I used to go and pick my daughter up from school, some you know, once a week, I'd see the football club coming back in from doing their practice. And when I was 10 or 11, even here in London, it would have been third Liverpool shirts probably and the rest London teams and I was amazed by how many of these kids had Barcelona shirts on because they see Barcelona play every week and Barcelona are an amazing team uh, and so they're like yeah that's the exciting team that's the team I want to be part of as far as they're concerned it doesn't matter that Barcelona is in a different country and it's you know however many hours away on a plane and they may not even ever go there so there's this kind of shrinking of, of the world which has allowed people to adopt teams they never would normally adopt. So you've got these two things going on with, you should really support the team that's nearest to you, but there are other other things that pull you to, to choosing a team, I think. 
Yeah. I mean, that goes on with, like you said, the world shrinking. And I mean, nowadays, many people choose their teams. They're not loyal to a team. They're more loyal to a player going back to our fantasy football conversation. And I think a lot of that started more so really after, okay, we call it America's team, the Cowboys. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm disowned if I were to even say that I like the, the Cowboys. I mean, I lived in Dallas for a little bit and I'm a Lions fan by heart, but wherever you go, there's, there's, fans everywhere for every sport and even more so now since the advent of television which got me thinking about going back to your telegraph times now this is way before your time obviously and i did some research you know seeing that it started back in 1855 which is just unfathomable thinking about <laughs> how long ago that is really and how yeah. much history there's been there but i saw in one that really in the history of the company it said uh 1939 claire hollingsworth was a correspondent and she had what they called at the time, I'm using air quotes because you can't see me on the screen here, the scoop of the century because she had spotted this, the, the German tanks at the Polish border and what they called was breaking the news on World War II. I mean, that's some, that's a major moment that is it, it's just like, it, something that most people will never get a dream or a chance to have something like that from a journalist perspective. What? What would you, if you had the chance to break, let's just use some imagination here a new story about the NFL, the history of the game going back in time. What one moment would you like to be the one that broke that story to everybody? I see. I, I broke one significant story in my entire career, <laughs> um, which was when uh, Sony PlayStation was hacked a few years ago. And uh, it had been, I'd been away on holiday and I came back and this is when I was technology editor and said to my team, there's the PlayStation network been down for the last week. What's going on? So I rang the Sony people to talk about it. And one of them, he just said something a bit weird. They were keeping it super secret. He said something that didn't quite make sense. And I made some other calls. And then I called him back and said, I'm going to run a story for tomorrow's paper saying that so the PlayStation Network's been hacked. If I do that, am I going to look really stupid tomorrow morning? And he said, no, you probably won't. Um, and so we had our story, and our story was published in, in the paper before it was officially announced, but they announced it an hour after my story came out. They put it on their website. So my story went 9 p.m., the first Daily Telegraphs off the press, with this front-page story. We were going to, you know, we were the first people in the world to break it, and then Sony put it on their own website an hour later and completely ruined my scoop. Um, anyway, if I, uh, if I was going to break a story, I think... I, I, I guess it's probably the answer that a lot of people would give, but I think it would be the merger. It would be uncovering that story because the conversations about the merger were going on for so long. And when you read into the history about it, you know, even Al Davis, who was theoretically the commissioner of the AFL, Al Davis didn't know they were planning the merger. And that was part of his longstanding rage against the NFL was that he felt he'd been deceived. And so to be the person who uncovers that and says the AFL and, and the NFL have been in secret talks and they're planning a merger and it's, this is how it's going to unfold, that would be an amazing story to, to get, I think. Yeah, that would be a, a good one. Like you said, there are so many interworking parts and secrecy between the two leagues and um, Hunt and what's the guy's name? Hank Stram. No. Mm -hmm. Who are the two that that were meeting in the Dallas parking lot. I can't remember who the two were now. It was, it was Hunt. No, didn't they give it the, the guy who owned the bills? Um, 
Wasn't it the Bills owner whose name I should know because the stadium was named after him? Are you talking about Ralph Wilson? Was it Ralph Wilson? I, I don't know if he was there back then. There was a so there was a meeting, and I I feel like I should know the two names now from the N from the NFL and the AFL, and they met in Dallas, and they at an airport, and it was a secret because they still have the statue there, and there was in Love Love Field is the that mm. was the main. And it was the two teams and holy crap, I can't remember it. I just, somebody, one of my guests had a, had told me the story about it. And it was just unique because like you said, Al Davis knew nothing. Well, I wonder how much he really knew and he was totally against it. I think it was the Bills owner and it was, was it Tex Schramm from the Cowboys? Maybe Tex Schramm was the one. Yeah. Maybe it was Um, Schramm and and somebody else, which I guess would make sense because he, he would have been there from the Dallas area. Yeah. But it was, I know that uh, I think Lamar Hunt had kind of dispatched mm-hmm. um, the, the Bills owner to kind of negotiate from their side. And Roselle was, you know, I mean, they they first started talking about mergers in the early 60s. I think that, that Hunt kind of knew that would be a good end game for the AFL. But, um, but yeah, I think to, to be able to pick up on all of those machinations, especially because that's the first point really where being able to land that kind of story on the NFL would be national news. You know, in the 50s, the NFL was still something of a novelty and kind of emerging. But by by the end of the 60s, football was a really big deal. So to be able to say, you know, the, the league is about to double in size, that would, you know, that would be pretty impressive. Uh, well, I don't think I could disagree with you. We're one of the good stories to break. Uh, it got me thinking too earlier this morning, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know why this came up about so we we always say that the 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 story goes to the victor we talk about back in the roman era you know you let you read the victor stories or nowadays you have an nfl game and there's a call that's made and depending on what side you're on it's like this is a bad call or that was a great call and you know it's just funny because whoever you're reading or whatever you're watching um not to say anything about american politics right now but it's wherever you listen or you watch it's the same thing it, it got me thinking so Obviously, in America, we have the Revolutionary War taught in um, in schools, and it's where the victors, where the heroes, where things like that. Do they do they just glaze over that in schools over there, or is it a different perspective? How was that taught and brought up? It's it's not. I mean, it's not something that you're definitely going to get taught about in a British school. So, partly. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but we have a lot more history than you guys. Oh, to, well, it's to, obvious. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking thousands of years. Almost. Yeah. It's a lot. Of, we've got a lot of stuff to get through before they leave school. We can't cover, you know, all the bases. And also we started a lot of wars. So, you know, if you're going to run through every time Britain's been in a fight with somebody, it's going to take, you're going to be at least post-grad, I think, before you catch up. So, no, there's, I mean, the big ones, you sort of do kings and queens, and you'll probably do Henry VIII um, at school. That happens a lot in British history. Second World War and and the rise of the Nazis and stuff is a big topic. Pretty much every kid does. Probably the First World War as well. Um, and then other stuff. It will kind of depend on the schools because they'll try and you know my my daughter's just she's eleven, so she's done sort of her basic history stuff in in junior school here, and a lot of that is things like the Romans and the Egyptians, and they've got to do all of that stuff as well. And so the British history, they've done um, the suffragettes, which is the women's movement of the early 20th century to try and get the vote. 
they did the Victorians, so late 19th century, early 20th century, some of the Second World War, um, but for, you know, like nine, ten-year-olds, there's some really, really horrifying stuff in the Second World War that you don't go into until much later. So they don't do the Holocaust until until they're older. Um, and so in terms of the British history stuff that you're definitely going to get, you're going to get a couple of kings and queens, you're going to get a couple of wars, um, maybe a historical era, but the whole US thing, maybe not really. I mean, I did quite a lot of US history at school, um, but from 16 onwards, so I did two years of it, and then part of my degree was in American history as well. Um, so I studied a fair amount, but most people coming out of school here might not have done any British history that really touches on the US. You said that you part of your your schooling was with American history. Did any of that have to do from a childhood being into American football and then just the whole so. culture? I think so. I think it was kind of, it was very much an identity thing in the 80s. So there were kids here who were super into soccer. And I had kind of lost touch a bit with soccer because we moved down to London when I was 10, 11. And so my team was 100 miles away. And so I wasn't really engaged with the soccer scene in London. And then I got into American football. And it was a small group within the school who were into American football. The kids who were really into soccer hated the idea of this fancy American sport. They didn't like the fact that it was it's like rugby, but they wear all these pads. What's their problem? So you were, if you were into American football, it was kind of an outsidery thing. Um, and so I think from that age of 10, 11, it became a part of my identity. This is the thing that I'm into. And that makes me different from other people. And so I developed this interest in the US from there. So I think definitely when it came to doing, uh, I did what's called an A-level here, which you study from 16 to 18 before you get to university. And so I did an A-level in, in history and an A-level in politics. And both of those were half US, so US history and US politics. So speaking that, so you, you being that your American history um, knowledge base already, then you know what Mount Rushmore is? Okay. So if I were to ask you to give me your Mount Rushmore, your top four books that you've read so far, and you can only pick those four, what would, what would they be? Wow. That's a really difficult question. Um, I think you have to put America's Game on there by Michael McCambridge um, because it is just, if you want a, here's a single volume, everything you need to know about the, how the NFL came to be, what it is. I think that definitely has to go on there. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of NFL strategy, and that's a big part of why I'm into the sport. So I would definitely want to have a strategy book included on my Mount Rushmore. And I think I would, I would probably go with Ron Jaworski's The Games That Changed the Game, um, because... I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but they, it's Ron Jaworski wrote it with some guys from NFL films and they go through a series of 10 or so games that changed the way that football was played um, because of some kind of strategic innovation or, or other. Uh, so um, Don Coriel's deep passing game is, is one of them, for example. And they've picked a game that kind of epitomizes the turning point. Although in a lot of cases, these were strategic developments that took years to play out. And what's great about that book is they really bring it to life. You really want to go and watch the film of those games as soon as you've read each chapter. And so 
although for a lot of people, strategy can be quite dry. I think that's a great book for getting people into it. Um, I think a, I would also want a book that is what I call the inside the team chronicles. So a journalist goes and spends a year behind the scenes with a team. And it's the one everyone would pick would be three bricks shy of a load, but I'm not going to pick that one, <laughs> partly because I'm a little bit allergic to gonzo journalism, which is the kind of style that it's written in, um, but also because I really have a soft spot for um, Collision Low Crosses by Nicholas Davidoff, which is uh, he spent a year inside the jets. And what all those books have in common is whenever the writer does them, the same with Three Bricks Shy of a Load, the same with um, Martin Bowden's Bringing the Heat um, is kind of a year of the Philadelphia Eagles um, and, and so on. All of these journalists always go in thinking that they're about to chronicle a team that's going to go on to massive things. Uh, and invariably, the wheels come off. Um, Next Man Up as well by, by um, John Feinstein in, inside the Ravens is the same thing, a team that People thought had a shot at the Super Bowl. They didn't even make the playoffs. And collision lacrosses, same thing happens. He goes into the Jets. They've been to the AFC Championship game the previous two seasons, I think, and they didn't make the playoffs. Um, and I think there's always something more interesting about going behind the scenes of a team where everything is going wrong because that really reveals character is when people are up against it and, um, and in moments of tension. But also... His, there's his brilliant observation. He's He talks about have not really having played team sports as a kid. And he talks about coming away from the Jets and really understanding what it means to be part of a team. Um, and he writes really well about that, about how the team doesn't always see eye to eye. There's sort of offense-defense tensions as there are in a lot of teams and there are players who, are, who can be difficult to, to deal with and so on. But um, he's he's really interesting when he sort of identifies that spot. Uh, for for um, for for the the value of teamwork and what you can learn from being part of a team, and then to pick a last one, I guess I'm going to go with it's sort of the um, NFL book nerd badge of honor, which is um, Finding the Winning Edge by Bill Walsh, um, because it's one of those books that uh, there was on Twitter recently. There was some kind of National Bookshelf Day or whatever it was. And I posted a picture of my bookshelves and there was a comment back early on saying, well, I don't see Finding the Winning Edge by Bill Walsh. And, and I replied, well, I've, I've got it. It's just not in that picture. Um, it's It has a reputation as being quite hard to find. It's not that hard to find. It's just very expensive. So if you want a copy, you are going to have to pay for it. But it's a fascinating book because it's Bill Walsh giving you everything he knows about running a football team. And I interviewed Brian Billick recently, the, the former Ravens head coach, but he um, he worked with Bill Walsh first in the uh, late 70s. And he co-wrote the book with Bill Walsh. And I asked him about writing it because it's, it's, it's so odd in that he throws in absolutely everything. So there's stuff like, he, he explains the play that led to the catch, you know, the famous um, championship game win over the Cowboys and uh, the game-winning touchdown against the Bengals in Super Bowl 23, I think it was. Um, so he gives you, like, detailed breakdowns of those plays. And then he gives you a word-for-word -word transcript of the lecture that he gave to the San Francisco 49ers secretaries every year. And you kind of read it thinking – does that matter to anybody? Like what you, the precise words that you say to the team secretaries, but it really highlights the extent to which 
NFL head coaches and I guess head coaches in general are so detail obsessed. It's this, you know, every little thing has to be absolutely right. And you really get that sense reading the book because there's so much stuff in there where you just think, I can't imagine why you would think anybody needs to know this. And then there's absolute other stuff that's absolute gold dust. And it's the kind of stuff that makes somebody a Hall of Fame head coach. So, um, so yes, that would be the four, I think. Yeah, I, that one gets brought up quite often. And like you said, it, I forget how much the guy said when he, we were on on the interview and he was looking it up on eBay. It was like 340 bucks or some, something outrageous price for it because of being out of print for so long. And you mentioned, yeah. oh, go ahead. The price goes up and down depending on how many are being sold at any given time. So you can sort of, if, if you're willing to wait a bit and look around, you can find it a bit a bit cheaper, but you're still going to pay. I mean, $200 would be an absolute bargain to find it. I know somebody who um, who found his copy for like $5 in a secondhand bookstore. Oh, they man. Had, they had no idea what they had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when you say the secondhand bookstore like that, it just sits on a shelf and most people pass it by and don't even realize. Uh, yeah, you know, if you're clearing out, you know, if a, a grandfather dies or something and you're clearing out a load of books that were in the attic, I mean, it doesn't look like it's a particularly special book. It's got a very dull cover of Bill Walsh in his gold jacket. It looks like it's sort of, you know, not really had much of a cover design going on. You just think, oh, this is just some football coaching book. Fine. Stick that in the box. Off goes the box. To the yeah, right. yeah. You mentioned Brian Billick and then kind of like that, that tree there. I saw that you interviewed him and I read through a little bit of the transcript What's the one question that after the interview you go, oh man, I wish I would have asked him this question to get some more insight? And what I wanted to go into, and I was, um, it's funny because, I mean, you've mentioned some of the people I've interviewed and I've interviewed some fairly powerful people over the years, but I was pretty nervous about speaking to Coach Billick because it's something about talking to, you know, he was the head coach of the first game that I ever went to. And we talked about that a little bit, and he remembers that game really clearly. So that was interesting. Um, but I was a bit nervous about this. It's going to be no nonsense head coach. I'm going to ask an embarrassing question, and you know, he's going to think I'm an idiot or whatever. Um, but the other thing was that he was he's in the middle of promoting his book. So he was going from interview to interview. So I was told very clearly there isn't a lot of time to speak to him. I wanted to ask more about what the process is like of being a head coach on the sidelines. Um, and I didn't get to that partly because it's not really relevant to what I do on the site. And it's more of, it's a thing that I'm endlessly curious about that, that how much, how much can head coaches actually change during an NFL game once it's underway or how much are they just kind of, you know, desperately holding onto the reins and trying to keep the whole thing on course. And I really wanted to talk to someone who's been there and been in high pressure games and, and get a sense of what that was like. But, um, but we ran out of time. So that whole line of questioning had to go, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, if you're a Detroit Lions fan, you'll, you'll agree that head coaches do make a do make a difference on the sideline. <laughs> Right. Unfortunately, <laughs> so and speak. Are, and there are those who are, you know have the reputation for never understanding clock management and you know, have a negative impact and so on. But uh, right, yeah, we're not talking about Kyle Shanahan or anybody like that right now. We're we're just carrying right. on with it. Uh, so speaking of that, and you didn't have a chance. And Brian Billick again, he was one of them that when they thought or there was a chance, and I don't know if it was he actually said it he was interested, but there was one time a Lions coach opening 
And he was the one of them they floated around and I would have loved it. But of course, you know, there's a little bit of that same, like you said, he, he was the first coach of the game that you watched for the Ravens. And I enjoyed, thought he was just a terrific coach and also listening to him speak thereafter on whichever network he's on. I can't remember what network it was. I think it was CBS, but going into it, you know, you said that you're nervous and uh, of course, because it's your, your hero or in a way, but What's a book or an interview, and it doesn't have to be football related, where you went into it and you had one perspective previously, but then you came out of it on the other side of the story and you like totally changed your mind on a particular topic? Um, hmm. That's an interesting one. It's, I mean, one of the things that I try to do with anyone I've interviewed it's you know particularly working as a journalist it's a little bit like working as a lawyer that you're not you're 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 asking questions where you kind of know the answer to an extent or you know which area the answer is going to be in um and so you don't want to ask a question that's going to completely surprise you because if it's an area you don't know anything about at all you would probably have tried to work out where the boundaries were before you went in if that makes sense you kind of try not to go into too many completely blind areas. And there's one that, that sticks in my mind from back when I was a music journalist. Um, and I had had, I think every young journalist gets this, where you get an interviewee who's really not very interested in being interviewed. And you get it particularly with bands when they're just, you know, they're permanently tired they're just touring around the country playing shows they just want to get on stage and then go and get drunk and party afterwards they really don't want to sit talking to journalists um, at any point and so I had one guy who was just every answer he gave to every question I asked was just a joke he was just being completely flippant and not really engaging with any questions at all and it was very frustrating because I was getting nothing and at one point he made some offhand remark about um uh, not being allowed and it was really important that he be allowed to produce his band's album that had just come out and so I said well what difference would that make because at the time I was still quite young when I was doing this I didn't really know exactly what a producer does in the studio and so I said what difference would it make having a different producer producing your album and so he went off into like a 10-minute answer to explain what a producer does and how important it is that he be the producer of his band's songs because he had the sense and the vision of what they were supposed to sound like and he couldn't communicate that to somebody else. And from that point on, because I was genuinely interested in knowing the answer to the question and I'd hit on something he was passionate about, the rest of the interview went really, really smoothly. He was really into it from that point on. But um, it, was, it wasn't so much changing my mind, but it was sort of stumbling across something where I suddenly thought I had no idea how complex this was or that this whole thing was was such a big deal. I'd kind of assumed a producer kind of goes in and just makes sure it sounds good. You know, it's just like you want to be able to hear all the instruments and hear all the vocals and that's kind of it. I hadn't realized the extent to which the producer shapes what you hear on, on a band's album. All right. So this is a little bit of a different twist on a question I asked you earlier. Mm. Uh, you can't use the same 1960s NFL merger because <laughs> that'd be kind of cheating here. So every guest, I give the virtual keys to my DeLorean and you got to get that baby up to 88 miles per hour. You can go back and point in any time in NFL history. But for you, how about let's go back to one of the books that you read and you could relive one chapter from that book. But you were actually there, a fly on the wall or even asking questions. 
what oh. chapter you're going to? Wow, that's a very good question. I, I think this kind of ties into um, ties into the answer I gave about being fascinated by what a, a head coach is doing on the sidelines. Um, so in, in Jeff Benedict's most recent book about um, the New England Patriots, the dynasty, he goes through the whole history of the Patriots from um, from the early 70s right up to earlier this year with Tom Brady leaving. But the moment I would like to put myself into would be being on the sidelines with Bill Belichick during that comeback against the Falcons because I think – as I say, I'm fascinated by what the head coach is doing on the sidelines as these games unfold. But I think particularly Bill Belichick masters that process like nobody else. And so I would want to be there just watching what he's doing. Like at what point, how is he keeping the team in the game? What's he changing? How is How are things changing as the score tilts back in the Patriots' favour? What's he saying to people and how is he getting people moving? Um, I think that would be absolutely fascinating just to follow him around for those three hours. Yes. <laughs> um, not to keep bashing on the Falcons, but one of the more, I guess you'll say worst losses that they had was over in London against my oh. Detroit lions where the lions came back. I don't know how many points it was in the fourth quarter or whatever, but uh, that got me thinking about, do you think, well, I mean, past COVID, of course, this, um, this is a conversation not to have in for at least a year or two. Do you think there is enough of a fan base or enough people that would, support a London team if that ever came to existence? So was that Lions game, was that the one where they kicked the um, game-winning field goal twice? Uh, I don't remember that specific detail, but I think so. I want to say it might have been the first year Prater was there. They they were down in the first half by 20-something points, and they came back and won at the very end. Yeah, because I was was at that game. Oh, okay. I was. I've been to all the London games except one, and um, I'm pretty sure it was that game where they kicked the game-winning field goal and missed, and there was a penalty. But it was some weird procedural penalty. I don't think it was. It was. It was a penalty that the Falcons couldn't decline, and so the. I think it was a penalty against the Lions. The Falcons couldn't decline it, so the kick had to happen again, and then they made the kick and won the game. It was a, an amazing outcome. But um, I think that in terms of a. A franchise here, I mean, they've got up to, you know, before, of course, COVID derailed everything, they got up to the point where they were selling out four games here in London, um, which is half of a home regular season. And their plan was to work up to a point where I think they were sort of talking about maybe getting to six or to eight. I mean, it seems like there's a definite plan that they want a franchise to come over here. The Jags look kind of likely. particularly because the owner, Shad Khan, owns a football team here in London as well. So there's some links there. He was trying to buy Wembley Stadium, which is where the Jags play their games when they come to London. That deal kind of fell through, but it's still the thing people talk about doing. Um, I think that this is actually, this is an answer where my mind was changed in in an interview, um, which I'd forgotten about. So I've spoken to a few people about this. I spoke to Peter King about it, who obviously... You know, the legendary NFL journalist has spoken to loads of people within the league about the prospects of a team coming over here. And I spoke to Neil Reynolds, um, who is the guy who presents NFL coverage here on Sky Sports. And it was Neil who changed my mind because I was kind of saying, well, 
you know, most of the fans like me aren't going to switch teams. I'm not going to, you know, I've been a, a Ravens fan now for 20 years. I'm not going to suddenly decide, okay, now there's a team near me. I'm going to support them. And I'm not really interested in having a second team. So as far as I'm concerned, I'll go to games if it doesn't clash with a Ravens game, but I'm not going to become a hardcore fan. Uh, and Neil pointed out that it's not for people like me or people like him. It's it's basically kids. You know, they get the kids into the game, like I was talking earlier about these kids now who are eight, nine years old and they're Barcelona fans. If you're eight, nine years old and a new exciting sport comes along, like it did for me in the 80s when I got into NFL, you will support the London team because that's the new exciting team to support. So it's about building that fan base then for the future. Um, and I think there are enough people here who love the sport and aren't as lucky as I am to be able to go to the States relatively regularly. Uh, so I know plenty of Ravens fans, for example, the only Ravens game they've seen live is the absolute disaster at London where we were destroyed by the Jaguars. That's their only experience of a, of a game. And so they go along to these London games because they want to see a live NFL game. So they would still go. Some people would kind of adopt the second team, but it's really about that next generation and building that next generation. And and it does seem to work. The NFL goes into schools here and they teach kids flag football. Uh, they have players, you know, pre obviously pre-COVID, they had players coming over regularly throughout the season and working with uh, amateur teams here, but also working with kids. And they are building this stuff from the ground up. For me, the bigger question that I still can't, find an answer to is just how you cope with primetime games. I mean, you said earlier, you know, you asked earlier what the time difference was. A London team could never host a primetime game. You can't you can't empty a stadium of 80,000 people at half past four in the morning. Even in a even in a city like London, you know, there's there's there are people who live nearby who wouldn't want the noise of a stadium blaring through the early hours. And the transport network isn't designed to to handle tens of thousands of people in the middle of the night. It's not that's not how they operate. So I don't know how, how you would do that, even if you could find 80,000 people who wanted to go to a freezing cold stadium in the middle of the night and watch a team. Um, so they couldn't host a playoff game. They couldn't host a Thursday night game. It just it seems like that would be a bit of a stumbling block. But, I mean, you know, maybe the league would just work around it and just accept that the London team would be different, I guess. I, it's just funny that you brought the the timing up and – this whole time, I that never crossed my mind. Like, okay, now we have to deal with a city at maybe four in the morning versus, in my mind, it was just like the teams traveling, uh, you know, across the whole entire ocean. Um, I I did have a paper, maybe a couple of papers in one of my uh, marketing classes. And that was the topic I brought up was because it was, uh, it, it was a company that had to expand internationally and try to find it. So I used the NFL because it's my you know, my passion. And that was my perspective too, was this wouldn't be for the fans that are already NFL team fans. It would be more for the people that kind of have an interest. They're just diehard fans of sport in general. And then maybe it would be for them to expand and grow the the brand of the NFL versus just kind of convert over or something like that. And uh, I mean, we have a lot that we've covered here and we, a lot on your books, um, what would be the pigskinbooks.com? What would be the best way for a user to come into your site and to navigate through your site if you were to teach somebody how to use your site? So, I've, what I've tried to do is make it 
fairly easy to find different ways in depending on what it is you're interested in. So you can go in and you can look at the teams, the book's broken down by team. Um, and it is a work in progress, kind of fleshing out to get all the teams in there. Um, but there's, there's a good chance now if you come in and, and you're interested in knowing what's there for your team, you'll find that those books are there. So that's one good way of doing it. I've broken them down also by category because some people are very interested in one particular type of book, but not at all interested in others. So some people love reading biographies of, of athletes, for example, but aren't really interested in the history of the league or the strategy or, or whatever. And so you can go in via category if there's a particular kind of book that you're into, you're into. And then there's the front page, which is just a bit of everything. So the idea is there that you can just scroll down and see what grabs your attention. If something grabs your attention and it looks like an interesting read, then hopefully you can find out a little bit more about it and decide if it's for you. So I've tried to tried to give people different ways in. If you're looking for a specific book, then there's an index by author as well. But the idea is that I, I've tried to predict what people might be looking for and, and find a way to satisfy that. Now, if there's an aspiring author that has a book coming out or even someone that wants to suggest a book, is there a way on your site for them to be able to do so? There is. So there's a contact form on the about page um, that you can go to, or you can find me at Twitter, which is on Twitter, which is pig, um, at pigskin underscore books, and just send me a message that way. Um, but either of those works. And people do often get in touch via the site and say, I've got a book on such and such. Can I send it to you? Um, which is great. I'm, you know, generally, the only thing I have, I've really said no to is, is fiction stuff. So somebody suggested <laughs> recently a series that he's been writing about a sort of intergalactic football league and uh, sci-fi books. And I said, it's probably a little outside my area, but thanks. Sounds like a movie I'd like to see though, instead of maybe reading. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> speaking <Yeah>. of that, <laughs> uh, you know, th thank you again for coming on, sharing a unique perspective, something that a different twist, I'll say, for an American football history podcast. And you could tell that you have passion for it, and we really appreciate it. Are there any last words of wisdom to give to the listener of the show? Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. And I would say at this time, think about supporting authors um, where you can. And uh, obviously, everybody is kind of struggling to do their jobs with the world being what it is. But if you can support bookshops, if you can support authors, um, then Curling up with a good book is a good way to be in lockdown. There you go. Cuddle up with a good book. And speaking of that, there are plenty of authors that we've covered over the course of this podcast. You can listen to the interviews with each of them. And if you're interested, well, yeah, Christmas is around the corner. If you want to buy one of their books, you can use our Amazon affiliate link throughout the website, which is over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can get to each individual episode just right through your podcast player through the show notes. There's always a link over there to get right over to the website. And before I leave, I have one mission for you. Even though you are probably not listening to this on Veterans Day because, well, that's when it releases, I implore you to seek out at least one veteran, buy them a coffee, cut their lawn, give them a lonely vet a call, or anything that you see fit to help a hero out. Without them, we are not us. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, we're
we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs>